Today on the Arkansas Moderati Podcast, powered by the Purple People Project, we talk to Alan Elrod, President and CEO of the Pulaski Institution, a startup think tank headquartered right here in Arkansas, focused on democracy, globalization, and the distrust of traditional democratic norms and how to restore that trust in our most important institutions. We talk about how to message highly complex things effectively to engage more and more citizens into these very important debates. We talk briefly about the FOIA debate and where we go from here in a less transparent state and the bipartisan feelings that it's wrong. How people can find their place in a more global world is what we discuss and keep from losing themselves and their lives in the process. A note from us at P3. This episode was a bear to edit. So much good stuff. So we've left it long form to capture all the nuance and detail. Feel free to bounce around or listen over a few sessions. It's full of great information and our guest was excellent. Hope you enjoy it. Before we start like officially or whatever, just give us a, a casual rundown of what all you guys are doing and, and what's going on. Yep. So Pulaski, the Pulaski Institution, we're a startup at this point, 501c3 think tank. We're filed here in Arkansas. Although right now we're largely virtual, all of our fellows are scattered around and, and we don't have a physical building as of yet. But our main areas that we're particularly interested in have to do with essentially democracy and globalization. And our big focus is primarily on largely Western advanced democracies, places like the United States, Canada, the UK, France, Australia, largely because we're really interested in these trends of crack up that have happened in these places. Dissatisfaction with global trade, dissatisfaction with uh, certain aspects of immigration and globalization, and also then right-wing politics. In some of these places, it's more pronounced than others, right? But nevertheless, a trend line that is, at minimum, I think, distrusting of traditional liberal democratic norms and structures. And within that, what we're really interested in doing is trying to articulate both a kind of theory of government and democracy and also build up analysis and, and research that, that gets at democracy as a very localized and place-based project. Partly because we think that's one of the best ways to restore trust in these places. And also because we believe that you can't necessarily say the United States isn't a democracy. That's not true. Nor can you say that about France or Australia. But what you can identify very clearly are a lot of problems below the national level. Regional issues in places like the US and Germany that are federal systems, certainly at the state level, places in the United States, states where policy is really running in a illiberal and anti-democratic direction. The success of far-right parties like the AFD in local districts in Germany, things like that. And so we're particularly interested in how that problem emerges, because the reality is that most people who live in a democracy, their primary contact points for it is actually much more local than it is national. And so if you see a deterioration of liberal and democratic uh, functioning at those lower levels, then you're seeing a deterioration in the quality of liberal and democratic life that people enjoy. And so that's the broad strokes. We're trying to produce work that looks at those things so, um, somewhat in tandem, but also in terms of having different columns of research. You you brought up globalization, mm -hmm. and that seems to be a rallying cry. I think in the 90s, we were promised that globalization was a a panacea. <clears throat> but I have a friend from high school. They live in West Texas. Her husband is a production manager 
for a small to medium-sized refinery. And they talk about how she has talked about how she sees the jobs even related to the petroleum industry. So a lot of them went to Mexico and some other places. And he's my age. I'm 55 years old. So how do we, what do we say to, and you're not, you're not going to retrain him to put, to hang solar panels. How do we approach a lot of those genuine concerns that they have with globalizations and things like that, because it's going to, it can affect their everyday income. It does. It does. I think one of the things we have to look at and say is that there are benefits and you enjoy those benefits every day when you go shopping for one, but there are, there are downsides and we probably shouldn't gloss over them. I think there's a little bit of a difference. There's, there's a little bit of a, a fork in what you've said in terms of there's the green energy transition, which is certainly a, a global project in a lot of ways. We're going to have to, this is what like Hillary Clinton got in a lot of trouble for in 2016 when she went to West Virginia and basically said, these jobs are- Cole's dead. <laughs> it is. So that's the problem. The, the, the error on her part was that was a messaging fiasco, right? There wasn't a sensitivity to how to say it, but it is. We have got to address that. We can't that. We want our economy 50 years from now to still be as dependent on fossil fuels and other sort of high carbon industries as it is now. We just can't pretend that we think that's good. The challenge is, of course, actually putting in policies that, that will help those people transition. Now, if someone's late in their career, in all likelihood, this is a bit of a gentler off-ramp than some people think. We're not going to turn the sort of spigot off on oil tomorrow. Even if we think that would be great, it's probably not going to happen. So I think what I would say is what we're getting at in these conversations, and this is something that I think is true, we can talk about it more throughout, is there's always going to be a need to deal with um, anxieties that are the result of perception in the economy. And regardless, and this is why when, when people will criticize, by the way, something like there were all these studies after January 6th that said, look at these people who did storm the Capitol. They're actually not that poor or that economically hurt. Mm. I never thought that was particularly meaningful because what matters more when we're talking, and we're seeing this right now in the broader conversation about 2024 and the state of the economy, what matters more is how people feel. Relative status anxiety is a very real thing. Even if someone in West Texas might actually have the opportunity to be transitioned onto a new job, they might feel that they're going to lose certain things, prestige, maybe they're not going to make as much money, right? There are other things that are not just about job loss that come with economic turmoil or people's sense of anxiety about the economy. They're not just raw income-based or employment-based feelings. They're more nuanced than that. And I, the short answer is it's a really complicated set of propositions to deal with people's feelings about these issues. And that's there's not a straightforward answer. Well, the first thing we can do is try to balance honesty, I think, with compassion and say that, look, the reality is a lot of these places, jobs might move away. I don't think onshoring, this is probably where I disagree a little bit with the Biden administration. I don't think, I don't think aggressive onshoring is necessarily a good move. I think that there's a lot of positives to a global economy. And I don't think pretending that either the energy economy or other production economies that are vulnerable to global trends are going to be safe forever because we're going to aggressively protect them and prop them up through government subsidy or protectionist, other protectionist policies. I don't think pretending that's like an actual form of real long-term security is fair 
it hurts our economy and it doesn't actually necessarily provide that long-term security because it's an, it's an artifice. That's a bit and of a it's counter to the, uh, no, it's... The, the way they discuss any other part of the economy, right? Free market people love to say that the market speaks for itself. Hmm. If there's no market for people to buy coal, then coal is finished. It's as simple as that. If if people prefer to buy the electronic or electric vehicles, that's what the market wants. Uh, and you can fight against that as much as you want. But it's like, what was it in oh the buggy whip conversation in, I'm drawing a blank, the movie Gordon Gecko. The company that made the last buggy whip in America. Yeah. yeah, made the best buggy whip available in the free world, but once it's obsolete, it's the and in any other market other than energy, people will jump up and down to tell you that's the case. Well, but I, the the thing when, when I listen to you talk, I I just it feels refreshing because it's the first time in in several years that I've heard anybody speak with kind of eloquence about what shifts need to happen with details attached. Because we've gotten to where the mass of people, I think 30 years ago, there was a very, you, you felt very comfortable saying that's above my pay grade and I can grasp some of it. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I'm going to let the smart people figure this one out. Now with everybody having an equal voice and an equal share of voice, there's a, an active dumbing down of the entire population that allows them to, to, to loudly state that these guys are gearheads. They don't live in the real world. They don't understand what's really going on because Fox News and other things have dumbed down the population to believe that there's such a thing as a beautiful, clean, burning coal somewhere. So how do you how do you balance the fact that the arguments you'll have to make are really smart arguments with the fact that we have gotten to a point in our society that smart arguments almost always lose because if every Tom, Dick, and Harry don't understand the premise, then they just say buggy whips and clean burning coal. This is entirely, I think, why Pulaski is so invested and interested in place-based democracy. And it's because, um, look, we actually have pretty good political science that shows us that doesn't work, that nuance, the, the complicated arguments don't work. They don't win. And there's a reason why more emotional arguments work. So what you have to really, I think, be invested in is restoring a lot of the things that have deteriorated in the past not really actually, right, not just the past 10 or 15 years, but really, obviously, the past multiple decades. Trust in institutions, but also bringing people back a sense of opportunities to engage at the local level. And that has to be, I think, at the forefront. So how do you make how democratic and liberal values are enacted in people's actual backyards feel inviting and robust that to me is really, this is, those are kind of process arguments, but I think that's the idea, right? You, you need actually to revitalize these things at local and regional levels before you can just start talking about how you can win these big national narratives. Because that, that I think that's reversing the order of how persuasion and how actual, I think, good implement policy implementation are going to work. Yeah. So... I'm probably, I'm the bummer in this conversation because we, my wife ran for Usually. office and, and just watching what's going on. I've been to Republican County meetings. I've been to Democrat County meetings. How do you build uh, local support for these items when they are going, they, they tend to come across as complex and, and not as understandable. And I hate to say it, and I'll probably edit this out, but especially in a state like Arkansas, where people want slogan rule, how do you how do we get this to a local level that it can grow without having people just walk away? It, it seems like it would be a generational type um, change. Yeah, 
It is. Uh, but the I think the I think what about what we're talking about is how do you rebuild democratic and civic vigor at the local level, right? And that's to me that's the question, right? And you when we were chatting beforehand, you mentioned that your wife in some place outpaced Chris Jones in some parts of her race. To me, that's actually we want to. That is a to me a kind of effect that I think about as something that in a healthier system we'd see a lot more of a lot more crossing over in various types of situations because it means that you're getting uh, a sense in which the national to the state and the state down to the like the county of the municipal doesn't just track one to one in a kind of partisan way. You actually want that you want more of that kind of crossover stuff because it implies that there is a kind of a uh, 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 lively local conversation happening uh, and thinking about and, and willingness to diverge and, and, and such. So I think what you are looking for, what we're looking for, right? When we think about even how you measure democratic health and civic health, you look at things like local media. You look at things like people's willingness to participate in various, not just elected institutions, but community-oriented institutions, right? And that's the stuff you have to rebuild. You need to bring those participation levels up. You need what you guys are doing is is excellent, but you also need this stuff happening in a regional sense, right? You need stuff where there is a unfortunately decline in quality, just even like local news, where people can feel like they're all reading the same thing about their community and are connected to information. These are really nuts and bolts answers, I think. But that's the process. You have to rebuild some of these institutional and process-oriented parts of what democracy is. Before you can say, how do we make people <laughs> less partisan or less extreme? Because that stuff, it flows from there, I think. Yeah. And it is generational. But look, it, one, anything that has to do with like democracy renewal is a long process. But two, I think it's very clear the moment we are in terms of things like Trumpism, the the path out of this is not short. It's just not. But yeah, the Republicans have been working on this for 30 years. The seeds of this At went least. back to, to the 80s and 90s. And yeah, and the Democrat side has never believed that it would get as bad as it is now. And so now it feels like they're playing catch up to a large degree. But the media juggernaut that is out there on the right hand side is just is staggering. And I it depresses me sometimes because I, I engaged in that for a long time until, like I said, I, I left the Republican Party around 9-11. I engaged in that media when it wasn't as efficient as it is now and tearing that down and replacing it with what is the question because that's going to be one of the key things and a lot of people dying out and unfortunately just a lot of people dying out my dad went through a stage uh, before he died he died 20 years ago and he went through a stage where he just watched cnn 24 7 that was like his last five years that was his agenda and now you've got just a whole generation of people that 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 are are glued to fox news how does how do we replace that with something else is the question i don't have an answer to I think I can say more like what it would be nice to replace it with maybe than than the how, because I don't have a magic wand and I wish I did. Again, I think sure. it comes with these, like this connection to the place you're actually living. So this is that interesting two-step, right? I'm generally a believer that globalization is mostly pretty good, but also you don't want to obliterate a sense of place in the process. And what I think is healthy is people actually talking to their neighbors. <laughs> And that's the thing, right? Because what we have is people being glued to Fox News or, or whatever else 
there's other kinds of options out there now or, or just Reddit or something like that. The big problem there isn't just what they are consuming in some of these places. It's what it's replacing, which is interaction with actual people I, around them. I agree. Right. And, and that's, that's where I think it really gets sticky because if your main form of political socialization, the main way you think about politics and interact with politics and even talk to other people is on screens, away from your actual community, no, not interacting with the people down the road or the people who are on your city council or anything like that, then yeah, it, the potential for very toxic kinds of politics is extremely high. Yeah. These guys get tired of me talking about this story, but we were at a, one of the political meetings with my wife and Joyce Elliott was giving a talk and she just stood up and said, very frankly, she said, if your plan is to go and call 60% of the state inbreds and idiots and uneducated and racists, then mm -hmm. we're going to lose the entire state. And, and, and that's a little bit of the premise of what we're about, because I, we do believe that there are people out there that are persuadable. I have a hard time. And I think these guys do too. I have a hard time not giving up on 30% of the population right now and just saying they have to evolve out. But there is a chunk there that it feels like we can move, but we're not going to move it by calling them racist. And, and do, you, do you think there's a chance, I, I'm optimistic about it, that with Learns and now with this FOIA thing, Sarah may have overreached. I guess it depends on what we mean by that. Is there a chance I think that the FOIA reform could fail in the legislature? I think that there is. And I think that would show a certain degree of, of capacity to still be chastened. Now, that would be a sort of optimistic take, but I think that there is a very real chance of that. Do I think she's overreached in the sense of some sort of further electoral consequences? It's very hard for me to see how that has happened. I'm just I'm saying a lot of the early conversations we had were Republican dads mm -hmm. who have daughters saying, wait a minute, if my daughter gets raped, you're telling me that she can't abort that child. Now, hang on a second. And I'm seeing a lot of self-described conservatives and Republicans on Twitter in various places. They're really upset about this FOIA change because they've mm -hmm. always a lot of times Republicans transparency. So that's what I guess means what we're trying to do is pull the ones that are away that are possible. Is she making that easier by some of these questionable legislative decisions in the general population. I don't think, I don't know that, I think she's got so much sway over the legislature that I don't know about that, but. Yeah, I think that she is, this is the problem, right? With how nationalized politics is, right? Where she's just going by virtue of being a Republican in general to, to score generally on the upside of 50 on probably on her favorables and on everything else. Now, this is where we get into, I think, a, a different sort of set of questions about just because Arkansas is a conservative state, right? There's no, I think it's a center right, if that's what we mean by conservative, right? I don't necessarily mean it's an extremist state. But we have lots of evidence in political science that you can dig through actual various sets of questions and find all kinds of heterogeneous views and incongruity, right? There's not, right, this FOIA thing is a great example. There's not a lot of support for this. There's not a lot of support for extremely loose gun laws. There's not a lot of support for, for there's less support than you might assume in a red state for the highly restrictive abortion law. Now, the problem in those situations is always, it's one thing for people to say they don't really like that law. It's another thing to engage in a big, long policy fight about 
expanding abortion access because then it changes the conversation. Then it's a then it's a different question. Right. It's a referendum on whether you want more or less abortion access. And people are they may not feel the way they do in isolation about the restrictions when it's put to that kind of choice. But I think this is where it's important to say whether or not she has overreached in such a way that she would lose the next election is one set was one way to, to frame it. But the other one is that she, there, this is what concerns me. I wrote about this summer for the bulwark, which is that there is an attitude that she has a mandate for everything she wants to do. And I don't think that's true. No. I don't think the polling shows it to be true. You've just mm. raised a number of good points where she, there, there is very mixed to even uh, a lack of support for some of the things she wants to do. And also, it's just not a healthy way in a democracy to think, right? Winning elections mm -hmm. and being popular does give you a certain amount of political capital. And obviously, occupying the office gives you the, the literal constitutional powers that come with that. But it is not a blank check to do anything you please. And it certainly doesn't mean that people who oppose you are illegitimate to do so. And that's part of what's really concerning to me is this treatment of anyone who comes out and says, this is a bad idea, this is bad policy is treated as an extreme fringe left, unrepresentative of the state. But that's not the case, right? The FOIA law is being criticized by the Celine and Pulaski County Republican parties. There, there's a lot of conservative frustration about the degree of the strictness of the abortion law, right? It's just not true. And those attitudes are what really concern me. And they show to me a kind of dispositional anti-democratic instinct. Even though they would say, how can this be anti-democratic because we won and the polling shows were really popular and say, the reality is on an issue by issue basis, democracies are very complicated things and delegitimizing your opposition, suggesting that it's just unfair or nefarious to face any kind of criticism or that even criticism that is coming from within your own side of the political spectrum is actually from leftist agitates who are extremists and outliers in the community. That to me shows instincts that are very at odds with the principles of liberal democratic governance. And so does this FOIA reform, right? My, my concern with the FOIA reform when mm. people ask the question is not, is she hiding something? I've seen that floating around. I, I would say, honestly, it's it seems to me probable she's not hiding any kind of particular illicit activity so much as she just has a view of herself and of government that amounts to scrutiny is just not something she should have to be subject to if she doesn't want. And that to me is a disposition that is right. fundamentally not democratic and, and illiberal. But most of these Republicans of today's Republican ilk, they all talk, especially early in their campaign, about transparency being a big part of what they want to do. And then they never follow through with it. And unfortunately, we have to we have to live with what has happened on the Democrat side as well. Obama said the same thing. He said he was going to come in, create a website. Everything he did was going to be up on the website. Anybody could go look at it at any time. So they all talk about transparency as being really a, a key part, but it's not. Do you think that as an issue that this lack of transparency on both sides is a way to start a conversation between people to say, look, we do have common goals and objectives here that kind of reach across the aisle, or is it too small once something else, once two weeks from now, we'll be talking about whatever else we're talking about two weeks from now. Is it too small or is it a collection of small issues that actually makes Republicans and Democrats start talking to one another? I do think that, that the FOIA case is a situation where you said, has she overreached? I think there's a very real chance that this doesn't pass. Do I think that she's overreached in a way that it's like the FOIA thing causes her to lose re-election or something like that? I, one, no, I don't. 
I just don't. But also we're far away from that. What I mean by that, though, is related to the question you just asked, which is, it is very clear that the that, that, that transparency in government matters, no matter who's in charge, right? We want that. And sh- there sure seem to be enough people who, even in the Republican Party, who remember right now uh, a period when that was a major talking point of the party and who actually seem to be saying, hey, that's actually what I signed up for when I became a Republican was transparency and accountability. And I'm not actually down for removing that just because the people in power currently are in my party. So I do think this is an area where we can say this is a fundamental principle of liberal democracy. The challenge just is the total corrosion, right, uh, at the national level of this conversation, the way in which it becomes, these issues become split in a partisan way. Will people remember this in a sense of like coming back and reject Republicans at future elections if they voted for this? I think that's less likely, but there might be enough public anger right now and pressure right now that it doesn't pass. And I think that's a useful insight about the fact that there are occasionally still moments where you can see people react to something that violates their most fundamental assumptions about how government. Like school board elections last time, the last batch of school board elections might be an example of that. School board elections are are a great example. I I get really worried. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I I think at a certain point you package enough. I think people are fond of saying democracy dies in darkness, which I I couldn't agree more. Of course it does. But I think right now there's a darkness movement where you could conceivably package a bunch of these ideas together. They they don't want history taught. They don't want to be to have anyone be able to see who they're flying places with. Or it just feels like it's become so restrictive at a certain point you have to ask whether or not they're interested in liberal democracy anymore or if they've given up on it. Uh, And so if the goal is the eventual dismantling of the the republic that we've always had here, then I'm not sure what the argument is to set that back. Uh, And I, I agree with you earlier when you said that we need to start to work locally to make people understand the global issues. You have to connect those global things to communities, just make them smaller and bite-sized so that people can see from wherever they live, how that is going to affect their day-to-day life. And once you start to do that, and unfortunately, part of that is gonna be restoring people's faith in the institution of democracy. I think then we'll start to make some headway. And it's like Tom said, they've got a 20 year head start on us in not only messaging, but learning how to message on this, any of this stuff. But you know, the, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just say the school boards are a great example. When we think about local politics, we also want to remember that places are different from each other, right? And that's a good thing. And they should have different dynamics and different politics. Part of what's really scary to me about the school board stuff is the, the instincts seem to me very liberal. But also, if you actually look at a lot of these places, the most activated people who are behind some of these pressure movements or even takeovers on these school boards, it's not necessarily the majority of these school districts. It's a good example of what can happen when you have a very activated core group and they're willing to overwhelm these institutions. Because there's not, I don't, in a lot of school districts in the country, there's not actually a majority of people who are walking around freaking out about taking books off shelves or whether or not someone else's kid is being called by a particular set of pronouns. Most people aren't, but these activated groups are pretty, pretty riled up and they show how effective that can be, right? 
that's the other thing we mean when we say we got to restore people's level of engagement and, and activity in their communities. It's because the danger of that low level of engagement is high because then the people who really do want to be engaged are going to get done what they want to get done. And it didn't used to be. Oh, I look like I froze. It didn't used to be. I can hear you though. Cool. Yeah, we can it didn't used to be that in these places, the most engaged people were also so extreme, but they are. And I think the challenge is still just, can you find ways to talk to people like people? That I don't know how else you get through this mess yeah. without it. You can still hear me perfectly fine. Yeah, I can oh, hear yeah, you yeah, we can hear you perfectly. So that's good. So <laughs> I'm up against a hard wall here. I can leave the recording on and you guys can continue talking, but this is freaking fascinating stuff. What I've learned today is that it feels like you guys are aiming for a, a long-term like generational type effort to, to slowly turn the ship. What is your organization planning to do practically in the next couple of years that will kick off that effort is the question that probably a lot of people would be interested in. Yeah, we've got a number of things planned. You can come and see already. We're, we're running this series called 50 Takes uh, on Democracy, which is a, a sort of blog style series where we invite observers and writers and sometimes political scientists or journalists to comment on the state of democracy in their state. Uh, we're hoping to expand that to international writers as well to talk about place-based and regional democracy in, in other countries. But one of the things we're really interested in doing is delivering um, a kind of annual analysis of, of this kind of stuff in terms of the same in the same way that other entities like Freedom House or VDIM or the Economist Index measure democracy at the state level. We're really interested in finding ways to deliver assessments of what's happening in terms of liberal democracy at the more local level in these countries. We've got some ideas in terms of collaborations. We're hoping that we can uh, collaborate not just in-state, but with other groups that are like-minded in terms of delivering conference events and ideas for those, hopefully, that are not just places to come and listen to people talk, but also places to come and uh, learn about local institutions and ways to get engaged. So we've got a lot of ideas. And like I said, we're pretty new. We we're, we don't have anyone yet who's staffed. You see all our fellows are in the voluntary capacity, but we are um, ambitious about the things we want to get done. And we're committed as we build this out to being rooted in Arkansas. I really hope that there is a material benefit to being rooted in Arkansas for the state of Arkansas, that we continue to draw ideas and talent here uh, by virtue of setting up tent in this place. Well, I think people don't realize how, and this is, I'll probably edit this out as well, but it's people don't realize how in a whole Arkansas is to begin with. I lived overseas for 11 years and I was in this expat community and I was always the dumbest kid at the bright kid table. The, they put really smart people over in these jobs and when we would talk about where I was from and what they knew about Arkansas, it was dismal because they were bright people. They knew something about the state, but they didn't know much. And so now, and that's based on the last 30 years of history. So now mm -hmm. if I'm a really bright, educated person that wants to move to the state of Arkansas, I'm not sure what the selling point is right now. When the when the headlines are restrictive women's health care, when the headlines are we're getting rid of child labor laws and re revamping child labor laws, when the headlines are Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who is not, I mean, I don't even really consider her an Arkansan, to be honest, and she's so tied with the Trump administration. I worry that it'll be next to impossible to get anybody who is remotely intelligent to move to the state in light of 
all of the things that we're doing. And that's where I get scared about what the state's going to look like 25 years from now. Ted always talks about my kids don't want to live here. My kids say, I don't want to live here. How do we change that perception? And I'm, I'm a little down about it to be quite honest with you, because I do love it here too. There's a compounding effect to that, right? If, if people are leaving because they feel like there's not a place for them here, then that is likely to make it to where even more people feel that way, right? At least of a certain disposition. When I used to teach at Arkansas Governor School, I would tell students, hey, go out, do what you're going to do. Many of these students have dreams of going to school elsewhere, many of them going to highly competitive schools. And I would say, go to Stanford, go to Berkeley, go to Wellesley and Columbia and NYU and go to these places. Great. And then consider at some point after undergrad or after your master's or whatever, coming back. Right. Because if part of why you want to leave is, is because there's all these things that aren't here, you have to at some point decide if you're going to be part of building them here. And that that's just straightforward. And I get it, right? I understand why someone wouldn't want to come here if they're looking at the abortion law, if they're just generally looking at the politics in some ways, if in terms of how toxic the national conversation has gotten. And obviously we have a governor who's very associated, right, with the past administration. I understand that. I think at some point, it's just a matter of who are those people who are willing to not just move for the kind of normal, basic quality of life uh, indicators that people typically move for, but are also willing to move in a kind of a purposeful sense of, I want to be part of something here. And I think that's how you have to think about it. You're, you're going to attract, you have to think about the people who see where they live as more than just uh, ticking those kinds of boxes. Because we have a wonderful state. We have lots of incredible natural resources. We have some, actually, we talk about the natural stuff. We also have some very cool cities. Little Rock is very cool. Yeah, Fayetteville yeah. is very cool. Hot Springs is awesome. But lots of places have those things and also maybe not the problems that we have right. that some people might see. And so I think you do have to think about the sort of people for whom relocating is also something they're willing to do in a more purposeful way that's about making yeah. a place. I graduated from high school in New Mexico. My father's retired army and I came here in 1986 to go to college at the University of Arkansas. My mother lived here. My parents were divorced. I could come here and get in-state tuition. The reason I wanted to leave New Mexico was because it was not forward thinking. It was not not particularly enlightened. Now, this was the southern part of the state. And at the time, Arkansas, Bill Clinton was governor. Or, you, know, you had Bumper and Priors in the Senate and all that. And, and when I used to come to Little Rock to visit, it felt very enlightened. I was back in New Mexico over between, as in Santa Fe, between Christmas and New Year's. The states have switched places. <laughs> New Mexico is a very enlightened place, smart people, new industries. So that just goes to show you nothing is forever. Yeah. And everything is changeable. And if you want to feel optimistic about the future, I did. I taught a couple of sessions to a cohort at the Clinton School and a very small cohorts. So it was like 15, 17 people. But to hear their stories of why they're doing what they're doing, the, the majority of those, I call them kids, but they're not kids. The majority of those those people are planning on staying in the state of Arkansas because they want to be a part of the solution. So you're correct. There are people like that. And when I interact with those guys for three or four days, it carried me for two months after that. I was like, yeah, okay. Okay. There is a tribe here. But Living uh, in this area, I tell people just the fact that we have a presidential library is significant and the things that that can bring the plans now to expand and have a Hillary Clinton 
essentially institute alongside of it and, and all the things in terms of the arts and stuff that are planning to go in in Little Rock. These are just me plugging Little Rock, but there is a lot to be excited about. And so I think it's those selling points are there, uh, but you have to probably think the kids, the kind of people who go to the Clinton School are exactly who I mean. These are people who are, they are not satisfied with just ticking the quality of life boxes when it comes to where they live. They're not satisfied with that. They are absolutely committed to the idea that there is a sort of purposeful, missional, intentional aspect to what they're doing, where they go. And those are the kinds of people that you're going to be able to bring here, I think, more likely. Yeah. Might be people who are just like, I like to fish in boat, and we have a lot of that. But I got to tell you, it, it carried me for a couple of months after I was involved. It was just amazing. Those They were really amazing folks. So I'm at a stopping point for me, but we can, you guys can continue on. So how do you, I, I love what we've covered so far. One thing I would like to do is either you verbally to these guys after I leave or written, can you just send me how you want to be introduced and, and how, how you want that to sound to folks so that we can, I can record that post. And, sure. but then the question for you three is, should I just leave this running and you guys continue on or, or do you guys have a stop? I've got to stop. Yeah. I think just give Alan a chance to give us two or three minutes, whatever we were not smart enough to ask him that he wanted to say and uh, get yeah. that down. And then thank you so much for doing this with us. Yeah. No, I really appreciate being asked. So thanks for having me. You mentioned how you, Alan Elrod, my, my, my title is president and CEO of the Pulaski Institution. You can find us at PulaskiInstitution.org. We are also on oh, X, formerly Twitter, at, at PulaskiInst, I-N-S-T. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter slash X, as well as threads, as well as any other platform, pretty much. I am at ASLrod. With my last name is E-L-R-O-D, but ASL Rod is my handle on just about every platform. I you check out, we have a kind of very embryonic YouTube channel you can also check out. We've just uploaded a panel there with two of our fellows and a fellow out in Arizona from the New America Foundation that I'm really excited about talking about disinformation or misinformation, particularly in rural areas. So that's an exciting thing. We have our own, if it's okay to plug here, podcast yeah. called The Periphery from the Pulaski Institution, which is available on i don't actually think we're on apple but we are on spotify and we're on amazon music and we're on google music so we're on pretty much everything else and you can find that as well on our website again we also have a store on our website if you want to buy things we have an arkansas specific shirt and all sorts of things like that so i'm happy to plug all of those things and would say that we have a lot more planned and hope that people will follow and get involved and and people can always uh, reach out to me ASLRUD at PulaskiInstitution.org is my email, and I'm happy to receive comments or questions or, or other inquiries. That's awesome. I think the FOIA stuff sidetracked us because it's actually happening today. Right. So it's an interesting conversation, but can you, I'd love to have you come back and talk again about this, about what you guys are doing, because I think it's really critical. And I, sure, I really obviously it. you can edit it out if it's, if it passes overwhelmingly. <laughs> and I, and I, <laughs> this, I just said, oh, maybe it'll fail, but um, Unanimous. I, Even the Democrats I, I voted for it. <laughs> I, I don't know. Given the up-to-date stuff on it, it yeah, looks bumpy. Sarah's in private meetings with Republican legislators, so yeah, I'm sure she's I'm sure she's I'm sure she's threatening them yeah. with losing funding over something. But, but yeah, and they've already out. reported that. They but you never know what's true or whatever. But somebody yeah. said to especially yeah. the South Arkansas bunch, they were saying that she was threatening to reconsider aid to schools and or to universities and all kinds of stuff that's just made Great. up probably but it's i wouldn't put it faster so yeah, yeah. rumor yeah. central has it that oh. 
thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. And I would love thank to you. have you back on here and we can talk uh, more deeply about uh, non like daily topical things and more about what you guys are going to do for the future because especially now that we've shifted our you, know, you guys are a longitudinal effort it's going to be it's that's really awesome that you're thinking from those terms because most of us are thinking about how to survive the next two years yeah it takes both it takes all the kinds of efforts right so. now for sure all right well, thank you very much man and we'll holler at you if we uh, have any questions or any other thing we want to pass your way all right thanks for having me thanks man thanks, thanks